as of January 1st this year, the oldest Protestant denomination in the United States, the Reformed Church in America, with previously uh, over 1,000 churches and 200,000 members, had a major shift recently, as of this, the first of this year. In recent years, there has been much debate in the RCA over whether the denomination should become accepting of homosexuality and same-sex marriage. Over these tensions, now 43 congregations known or broke away and are now part of a new organization called the Alliance of Reformed Churches. Although human sexuality was a major issue with, among this shift, these 43 congregations broke away to remain faithful to biblical Christianity. That their goal was to remain faithful in its understanding of God, in its understanding of sin, in its understanding of the world. And so now the realignment that began in the Episcopal Church, if you remember, a while back, the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America, PCUSA, and also the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, it's now happened with the Dutch Church over this crucial issue. It is strange that you would think a church that proclaims the gospel, a church that is designed to proclaim the word of God, would shift in its beliefs. And now not only believe and teach, but promote sin and sexuality. Most recently, these views are now also being promoted at the legislative level. Not sure if you heard, but in Canada, Bill C-4 was passed through the House and the Senate without opposition. It received royal assent on December 8th and came into law January 8th this past year, this year. The bill will now amend the criminal, criminal code in Canada to ban conversion therapy. It will criminalize, among other things, quote, causing another person to undergo conversion therapy, promoting or advertising conversion therapy. And the bill explains, everyone who knowingly causes another person to undergo conversion therapy including by providing conversion therapy to that other person, is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than five years. Similarly, everyone who knowingly promotes or advertises conversion therapy is guilty of an indictable offense and liable of imprisonment for a term of not more than two years. They say and explain in the bill that conversion therapy is harmful, even when sought by consenting adults including because it perpetuates myths and stereotypes. This is happening, we expect it gets to the government level, but even at the church, all levels, a shift and a change in understanding of human sexuality, so much so that not only churches are promoting it, but also the government now is strong-arming it. Now, in response to this political action that happened in Canada this past week, on January 16th, today, Faithful men across Canada and many faithful men in America, even this morning, are preaching on God's design for marriage and a biblical ethic of sexuality. It's happening in many churches right now as we speak. Now, I'm sure it's no surprise to you, but the political climate in America towards biblical Christianity is increasingly hostile. The battle is a real battle and one that can intensify with time. We don't know the future. We won't fear the future, but we know It can intensify. This battle should not be reduced to a physical battle. This battle is not against flesh and blood. This is not against just political leaders. This is not against just false churches. This is a spiritual battle. In perspective, 
Now, our lives in America right now are not in danger, praise God. This law hasn't come here completely yet, but the vice grips seem to be tightening. But this is a critical issue, that we don't want to just pinpoint just this big, obvious issue so we can just point at others. We need to realize what's happening here. There's a shift in truth in America. And so what is our response to a culture that is increasingly hostile to a biblical view of sexuality? What is our response? I just want to remind you of three convictions so that you may stand firm in a hostile world. I want to remind us of three convictions so that you can stand firm in a hostile world. The first conviction is that God's sovereignty remains our joy. I want you to hear that, that God's sovereignty remains our joy. Beloved, though this is in Canada, it's not far from here. It's in North America. And in fact, in 2012, California passed Senate Bill 1172, banning gay conversion for those under 18 years old. So if you're a licensed therapist in California, if you were to try to treat or or to talk to someone about changing their orientation or about their sexuality who are under 18, you could get your license revoked, removed. It's already here in some sense in California. If you're a licensed professional, it's illegal. In this past year, one political party in America has made pledges to ban harmful conversion therapy, quote unquote, as part of their platform. This is disguised, obviously, in language. It says harmful conversion therapy. This is disguised in language, an attempt to to protect innocent people. But in their spiritual blindness, I I do think there's some some sort of leniency that they they think they're doing good, that they want to ban harmful conversion therapy. They they think they're doing good. They want to protect in innocence these harmful things that are happening. But when you see in the bill, especially in Canada's bill, that condemns conversion therapy even against consenting adults, this goes beyond an innocent motive. That their contention is just not with just protecting someone, but it's, their contention is with biblical truth because it condemns the sexual revolution. Now, beloved, in, in spite of all this, in this climate that we're in, are you prone to anxiety? When you think of the turning of, of all the, the platforms, of the political changes, of the culture, of the climate, are you prone to anxiety or despair or sorrow? Are you troubled with the current state of affairs to the point that maybe your soul is in angst? I want to remind you this morning, the sovereignty of God is your joy. As I said, we should anticipate opposition. Anticipate it, believer. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12 says, Indeed, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you desire to live a godly life in Christ I got a promise for you. You're going to be persecuted. Now, you may be persecuted when you share the hope of the gospel. You may be persecuted when you you say that you still believe there is one God and there's only one way to God. You may be persecuted when you just say your beliefs on human sexuality, that there is just two genders. You may be persecuted on any level of biblical truth. We don't know what's coming. We won't fear the future, but we know it's promised. And one response to all of this, especially these changes, may be despair or anxiety. But that happens when we lose sight of God's sovereignty. It's the fact that he is on his throne. 
Scripture is filled with accounts of faithful men and women who came against opposition for being faithful to the word of God. We're in good company. For example, Elijah faced pressures in 1 Kings chapter 18. Now, if you recall in 1 Kings chapter 18, this is a time when idolatry was rampant in Israel. And the worship of Baal was authorized and normalized, even by the king and his wife. That idolatry was, was authorized. It was approved of. Now, 1 Kings 18, if you're familiar with it, it surrounds the count of Elijah against the prophets of Baal. That Elijah, if you recall, he prepares them. He calls them out and says, bring your prophets before me. And let's just have a challenge. You make an altar to your God. I'll make an altar to Yahweh, the true God. And whoever brings down fire from their God, that reveals who is the true God. Chapter 18, verse 24, it says that then you call on the name of your God, I will call the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, Elijah says, he is God. And all the people said, this is a good idea. Let's do it. Now, I think you know how the story ends, right? They, the the prophets of Baal, they they come, bring their altar. They set it up and they start making prayers and, and requests to their God. And they're doing it all the way until nighttime, just trying to pray for that fire to come down, come down, come down, doing all sorts of crazy, wicked things in order to do that. And nothing happens. And then Elijah comes along, and he prays to God. And what happens in verse 38? He prays to God. He says, if you notice actually before he does that, in verse 37, he says, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their heart back again. And then verse 38, what's the outcome? Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Who's vindicated? The God of Israel. That Yahweh was revealed to be the true God. That fire miraculously came down, consumed his altar that was trenched with water and consumed the sacrifice. So much so that the people saw this and they said, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God in verse 39. That they saw by the miraculous hand of God, the true God of Israel was Yahweh. Now, do you remember how Elijah responds after this? Because after this happened, Yahweh was vindicated. What did Elijah do to the prophets of Baal? He had them all killed by the sword. Rightly so, according to Deuteronomy 13 and 18, for a false prophet, you need to be murdered because you're seducing the people away from the true God of Israel. So he had the prophets of Baal killed. But what happens when Jezebel hears about this? In chapter 19, now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets with the sword. And then verse 2, then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may The gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Jezebel hears about this and says, you killed my prophets? It's go time. And how does Elijah respond? I know who my God is. This God who just brought down fire from heaven. This God who's who's a mighty God who I've seen his wonders work before my eyes. He even worked through me. How does Elijah respond? I'm not afraid of you, Jezebel. No, no, no. Look at verse verse 3. And he was afraid 
and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. He left his servant behind. I'm gone. Elijah was afraid. He was scared, which is a sad turn for this faithful prophet. Because think about the life of Elijah so far that we know. Beginning in chapter 17, God miraculously provided for Elijah by providing for him food and provision in the midst of a drought. That he sent the widow for him to to provide food. He even raised the widow's son from death to life. He raised him. He saw God's mighty hand upon him. And on top of that, we just saw how how God illustrated his miraculous power before the prophets on on Mount Carmel. That we saw God's mighty hand upon Elijah. Elijah knew who God was. God was undoubtedly with him. He was used by God mightily to call out the sin of the king and even also the people. So the people marveled at God. But now you see at one simple threat, he's afraid. He's afraid. Not of the king of Jezebel, the king's wife. You just stood against 400 men and now you're afraid of one person. Perhaps he brought to mind what she did with the other prophets of Yahweh. If you look at 18 verse 4, it says, For when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, that she destroyed the prophets of Yahweh before. Perhaps he thought about what, he could, what she would do to him as well. We don't know exactly what he was thinking, but he was genuinely afraid, so much so that he ran for shelter, ran for safety. And due to the threats on his own life, he lost sight of the sovereignty of God. As a result of this, if you know the story, Elijah struggled with depression, with fear, and even suicidal thoughts. Look at in verse 19, verse, chapter 19, verse 4. It says, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough now. O Lord, take my life for I am not better than my father's. He fled. He was afraid. He, he wanted to die. This is not what I signed up for. After all that I saw you do, God, I do not know what to do. Lord, take my life. He stand up, stood up against opposition. He stood up against political threats. That this political ruler who was perverting the word of God, drawing the people away from the word of God, Elijah stood up to him at first, and now when the threat on his life came, he wanted to flee because he lost sight of who God was. But I love in this account how God responds to Elijah, even in the midst of this opposition. Though Elijah is afraid because he realizes the threat in his life from a royalty. He realizes that there's a genuine threat. My life could be at stake. And yet God comforts him time and time again in this account in chapter 19. Because when he flees, God comes to him by, by a form of a whisper and he says, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? In other words, do you remember who I am? Why are you fleeing? Do you not realize I am here? I'm there? That I am the God who called down fire? Elijah, why are you afraid? Are you afraid that the kings have turned their hearts away from me? Elijah responds in verse 9 of chapter, chapter 19. Sorry, verse 10. After God says, what are you doing here? Verse 10, he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant and torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left and they seek my life to take it away. He says, Lord, I am alone left. I'm the only prophet left. God, what am I to do? 
I know you to be true, but no one else is with me. I stand alone. And that's the feeling that can happen. When you see climate changing, when you see politics changing, when you see the culture changing, where it's just the norm to embrace sin in every level, the temptation for us to feel is that I alone am left. What's happening now? But take note, Elijah was not alone. Not just because God was there, but he was not the only prophet. If you go back to chapter 18, verse 4, right when it talked about Jezebel murdering God's prophets. For when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, right? Obadiah, what, ha- what did he do? He took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. Even more, Elijah himself knew that because Obadiah tells Elijah in verse 13, if you scroll down, has it not been told to my master, who's Elijah, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, that I hid a hundred prophets of the Lord by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water? Elijah knew this. He was not alone, the only prophet. A hundred other prophets remained, but yet he cries out to God, I alone am left because he felt alone. He felt as though he was the only one left. Though he wasn't the only prophet, Elijah felt alone. He felt abandoned because though he knew God to be true and his word to be true, he felt alone. But God so graciously reassures Elijah that he is not alone. And even beyond that, if you go back to chapter 19, verse 18, what does God promise him? Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. That even in here, God promises, no, 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 Elijah, I know you feel alone, but guess what? I still have 7,000 beyond 100. I got 7,000 I've reserved who have not bowed down. You are not alone. What Elijah needed to be reminded of in his moment of despair, in his moment of doubt, when he saw the climate and the political climate changing, what he needed to be reminded of is the fact that God is still on his throne and he never leaves this world without a witness, but he will leave his faithful servants here. And so even though no matter how alone we feel, no matter how it seems like the climate is shifting and coming against the church, beloved, rest assured, you're not alone. And even more than that, God has called you to be faithful and rooted in truth in this time of the season. No matter how the culture shifts in its view of sexuality, the church will stand firm on truth, not afraid of opposition, not running or leaving California out of fear, but we will stand firm as a light proclaiming the truth in a dark land. That is your calling. And we see that the story of Elijah, all the miracles that are performed, They're not directed to emphasize just the personal greatness or the charismatic prestige and power of the prophet. That's not what it's about. But it shows us how to encourage the faithful by the demonstration of God's divine power. This is not a story to show how great and wonderful things Elijah himself did. But we see the story of Elijah to see how God's divine power worked miraculously as a means to motivate the faithful to know that God is who he said he is. So we should be encouraged to know that the same God of Elijah is the same God today whose hand is on us and who's present and is constantly working even now for his own glory. That's our God. So we won't run. We won't be afraid. 
whatever the news comes out tomorrow, guess what? He's still on his throne. As we see the culture developing an increasing disdain for biblical truth, the temptation is to fear man. But rather, we need to be resolved to fear God, who is in control, even though it seems as though he let go of the reins. It seems, where, where, where are you, God? Where are you? But rather, we know he is directing all things at all times without exception. That's who our God is. That we don't have to run. We don't have to flee. We don't have to worry. Now, I'm not saying here there's, there's, there's a legitimate case. If your life is truly in danger, yes, there is, there's a reasonable case to, to run and find shelter for your life. But when we're just running from this fear that things just may get worse, that I don't know what, what laws will get passed, I don't know what people will think. If we're just running out of this, this unnamed fear, that is not what we're called to do. But we should be, beloved, rooted in truth and, 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 and abiding in the light. That God wants light here. California needs light. The, the, our politicians need light. Why would we run but proclaim the truth of God? If we believe God's word is God's word, that is a double-edged sword, piercing in and piercing when it comes out. If you believe that about your God, you believe that about his word, then stand firm and be a light for the sake of his glory. That he will work mightily. And he calls for faithfulness among his saints. And we must be faithful. So we must stand on what we know to be true, which leads us to our second conviction that God's word remains our standard. That God's word remains our standard. To no surprise, this fundamental understanding is is so essential that God's word is our standard. It's so essential and yet found wanting in many circles. That God's word as a standard is is an inerrant, perfect word as a standard is found wanting in many circles. And what happens when we see absolute truth? The absolute truth of God's word is supplanted. What happens? If God's word is no longer the standard, what happens? Emotionalism is heightened. A warped ethical code is developed from low to high. Does that make sense? Our our ethical code is developed from low to high. In other words, from man working its way upward. So we see if, if, if if we don't have a standard, an objective standard, then we look at man. What is it that I love? What's important to me? Oh, that love is love. Love is important. So let's all let's love and love everything, no matter what, however we see it. Let's love everything and let's work our way up. Because that's true. We want to love everything about us and about what we desire. And that means God must be loved. And he loves everything as well that's down here. When we start our ethical code, when we supplant the word of God, our ethical code begins down and it works its way up. That's the natural conclusion when you supplant the word of God. Let's look at us. What do we love? What is good? What is righteous in our sight? And that must be who God is because who would give us these desires? That's who God made me to be. That's that's God. So let's work our way upward. That's the natural response when God's word is not the standard. But that is our conviction here is that God's word is the standard. And because God's word is the standard, we make our ethical code from God's word downward. What his, he said has implications on us. This is who God is. And exactly, this is what's happening in the sexual revolution we're witnessing around us. That now in the name of, of, of love, you see a picture of Romans chapter 1 verse 22, where they are professing to be wise, they became fools. 
and exchanged the glory of incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. That's exactly what's happening. In order to make room for the sexual revolution, you must reject God's standard. You have to because it condemns it completely. Because now, as I said, the rhetoric is what? The rhetoric is love. And it sounds so good, love. And if you've heard, love is love, right? That is the pledge. Love is love. But, but let's ask the question. How do you define love? What is love? What is love? As my uh, apologetics professor in seminary, Kevin, Kevin Zuber, he would say, according to what standard? According to what standard? If you're saying love is the goal, love is the end, according to what standard? In other words, what do you base that on? How do you know that to be true? What what is it that you're standing on? In the preamble of Canada's bill, it says that conversion therapy propagates myths. Who decided there were myths? How do you define a myth? What evidence do you have to to call it a myth? Why can't I call your bill a myth? According to what standard? This is what I call, this is the postmodern catastrophe that anything goes as long as it does not intersect with what I feel, what I desire, and what I believe is true. If you don't touch my lifestyle, then yes, that's true. That's a postmodern catastrophe. Every answer could be the right answer, so long as it does not clash with me. According to what standard? If the word is not the standard, then we expect this to happen. So postmodernism, postmodernism is the scholastic term for idolatry of self. That's what it is. It's the idolatry of self. That what I love and what I believe, that's what I'm going to promote. And as long as you don't touch that, we're good. And what that is, folks, is idolatry. Because no one can touch that. You cannot touch that. If you say your God is against that, then I'm going to take your God down. That is idolatry. This is what the culture we're in. It's the idolatry of self. When the word is supplanted, then what becomes the standard? According to what standard? And what really is the answer, what they won't say is, I'm the standard. And then you're the standard. And then you're the standard. We can all be the standard. And it makes no sense. It's a postmodern catastrophe. That there's always a standard here. But what they do not realize, they're professing to be wise. And sadly, they become fools. Because they've exchanged the glory of God with their own thoughts, their own beliefs. It's as 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 says, they have become lovers of self. Verse 4, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, hear me, this is not just to point fingers in inferiority. We just have to understand that we should not be surprised at what's happening. Don't be surprised. We, can, we, we can't be shocked when we see the world and even churches pandering to social movements. Don't be surprised. But needless to say for us, the standard remains the word of God. Because what's happening now is the deceitfulness of sin says that the Bible's teaching on sexuality is archaic. It's chauvinistic. It needs to reflect the current world. Well, we need to take this Bible, and you know, it's, it's written for a certain time, but we need to adjust it because it's not really what's, what's happening with here right now. That really doesn't match our current state of affairs. It's out of date. It was written by these men long time ago, and it, it's really not valid. And that's the deceitfulness of sin. 
I don't like what it says, and so I have to excuse it. The temptation will always be to veer from Scripture. Real fast, in Deuteronomy chapter 13, we're speaking of false prophets. It says that if a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods and let us serve them, then you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of that dreams. So you catch that. So even if a prophet, if a dreamer of dreams, no matter how persuasive their speech is, even if they do signs, which you see before your eyes, they do these miraculous signs that you are even looking and observing. If they do all of that, and then they say, let us go serve other gods, do not listen to them. In other words, no matter how persuasive or true or scientifically founded their their findings are, no matter how true it is, if their teaching veers you away from God, do not listen to them. That even miraculous powers they can do. But if what they're teaching you draws you away from what you know to be true, do not listen to them. Which means if they're doing miraculous signs, everyone will believe them. They, They must be true. I saw it with my own eyes. No, this has to be true. Do not listen to them. It says, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Verse four, you shall follow the Lord your God and fear him. You shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him and cling to him. You hear that? No matter what, no matter what is the majority, no matter what everyone says is just basic truth because we know it to be true, if it veers you away from what is true in the written text, do not listen, but stick to the truth. This is why a false prophets, again, it says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, that many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. Many will follow them in the church and outside of the church. That even in the church, many quote-unquote denominations, churches, are preaching a false gospel, a false view of sexuality, a false view of man and of God. And many are following them. And the way of truth is maligned. So we shouldn't be surprised at this in our culture. In sin's deceitfulness, it assumes that your true good and delight is outside of God. That's why they're deceived. That they're thinking that the true good, that my, my true good is outside of God. Every time we're lured by our temptation to sin, whether it be sexual sin or any other sin for that matter, we're, we are believing that this is what I need. That's what we believe every time we fall into sin. That we are being deceived. You're being deceived. That this is, this is good. Actually, this is what I need right now. I have a lot going on. This may be the thing that gives me peace. This may be the thing that makes me whole. I am being deceived to think that I can live my way outside of God's designed way, and this is what brings me my joy. Being deceived time and time again. And for those in the world, those are trapped in this sexual revolution. The scripture says that God is sadly, tragically giving them over to their own deceitful desires. But beloved, believer, how prone are we also to believe that sin is good in that moment of temptation? But in this world now, in this sexual revolution, they go further down that role that hole. 
Not even just believe that maybe this is what I need right now. But now it's not what I need. It's now this is, this is who I am. This is my identity. This is what defines me. They've been given over. You see this sad, tragic spiral. We should have a genuine, genuine compassion for them. Have a genuine compassion for sinners, all sinners, because you too were once in their place. And we should have an ongoing compassion pleading for God for their salvation, that he would open their eyes to see the deceitfulness of their sin. If God's word remains our standard, what does it say? What does it say? It says the design of male and female is good. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, we know this, that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Furthermore, speaking of marriage, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it describes the husband in masculine terms and the wife in feminine terms. The assignment of man's gender and the role of gender is established at creation. And it's even upheld after the fall. And even the Lord Jesus Christ himself upholds that same standard. In Mark chapter 10, verse 6, he says, But from the beginning of creation, this is Jesus speaking, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. I don't think I need to belabor this. We know what this Bible speaks on gender and on marriage and on sexuality. But consequently, in light of this, because the current issues on homosexuality, transgenderism, etc., they're, they're an obvious contradiction to God's design of what is good. I don't think I need to argue that for us this morning. We know that because God designed it and it is good. That's what's that's, that's good. And just think about it that way. This is the true good of man and woman, is to embrace their identity and their embraced identity of him. That's good. So in a sense, the world it echoes the very words of the serpent in the garden. Did God really say? Wait, did God really say there's only two genders? Did God really say this is the design for marriage? Wait, did, did God... You really think there's only two? Do you really think that? Come on. Wait, no, come on. No, 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 no. What, what about this? Wait, wait. You, this could be, this is so much fun. I mean, this, this is who you are. This is, who, this is how he made you. God made you that way. Did God really say is the basic echo that we hear today. Nevertheless, that moves us to a third important conviction. That God's gospel remains our hope. That God's gospel remains our hope. It's quite interesting that the terminology in Canada's bill outlaws conversion therapy, quote-unquote. It's defined as, quote, a practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, change a person's gender identity to cisgender, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth, repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, repress a person's non-cisgender identity, or repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. End quote. Now, if I'm being transparent, 
I'm not interested in conversion therapy. I know they're maybe intended at me, at, intended at people who profess biblical truth, but you know, I'm not, in, I'm not interested in, in conversion therapy. I'm not about that. I'm not going to pretend that there aren't plenty of accounts of manipulative, harmful counsel trying to change a person's orientation in the name of Christianity. I'm not going to pretend that didn't, this never happened, that doesn't exist. I'm not going to pretend that there aren't many well-meaning parents who hear their, their child's new sexual identity and don't know what to do, so they just throw them at the closest counselor they can find in order to fix their child. I'm not going to pretend that doesn't happen. But for that reason, I too am against conversion therapy because there's no hope in that paradigm. My goal is not just to change a person's sexual orientation or sexual identity. That is not my goal. Now, we also know that what they label as conversion therapy, it's, it's ambiguous. This definition is ambiguous of what that really involves, what that includes. It's ambiguous, and I think that's intentional, but that's beside the point. So, so why is conversion therapy insufficient? It loses sight of man's greatest need. It loses sight of our greatest need. The church here is made up of ex-sinners. Look to your left and to your right. It's an ex-sinner. They're in Christ, an ex-sinner. This is, this is the room of ex-sinners. Welcome to the club. That's what the church is made up of. The reason we can't point our finger inferiority at others is because we need to remember who we are, but even so, remember who we were. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swinders will inherit the kingdom of God. It's pretty plain and simple. Homosexuality here is not the chief sin right? It's not the chief sin in this passage. There's no partiality with God. Sin is sin. Any and all of these sins are disqualifiers from the kingdom of God. Then no matter what it is, the sin is sin. And even in our present state, in our present state here, you notice the law has excused the drunkard in this list. The law, essentially, it's not a sin to be drunk if you're in your home, if you're not in public, right? If you're not driving, you can be drunk. The law has excused that. Does that mean we're not going to preach that it's sin? No. The law doesn't speak against uh, fornication. Does that mean we're going to stop preaching against it? No. The law does not dictate what we believe and what we preach. God is saying here that all sin is sin, and all these would disqualify someone from the kingdom of God. But the important thing here is that the standard is the word, and we don't want to point fingers because we realize of who we are. Verse 11, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. In other words, the imperfect tense. I mean, this was an ongoing action of your life in the past. This was a continual state of who you were. Such were some of you, brethren, that you too were a reviler. You too were a homosexual. You too were a thief. You too were a drunkard. You too were idolater. You too fall into this list. Such were some of you. The capital C church is made up of fornicators, idolaters, etc. But that's what they were. They did not remain that way. Brothers and sisters, we didn't get conversion therapy. We didn't get here through conversion therapy. 
We got here through soul conversion. We got here by the miraculous grace of God. What happened here in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9? It says, or verse 10 now, and such were some of you, verse 11, excuse me, such were some of you, but, but, the strongest adversative conjunction you can have in the Greek, but, such were some of you, you were too in this list. You were included in that category of this list of sins. You were among them too, But what happened? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. What happened to you, brother and sister? You too were guilty. You too were filthy. You too were unworthy. And what happened to you? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. He says we were washed, speaks of regeneration. This is the renewal that you were cleansed. This is not just from the outside. You didn't just stop your mannerisms. You were cleansed inwardly. You were sanctified, speaking of new behavior, that you were now made holy inwardly so that by the Spirit's behavior, you can live a new life, both inwardly and outwardly. You were justified. This is a new standing. You have now a new standing with Christ that you are righteous. You are perfect because of Christ's righteousness. This is what happened to you. Beloved here, this is our anthem. That your sin may not be on this list, but you too were just as guilty no matter what your sin was. God has no partiality. But you were washed. You were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel hope. This is why conversion therapy does not do anything to any person. You need to be changed and transformed from the inside out. We can't look to a false therapy to make things right. Our goal is not just to make someone straight. Our goal is not just to change someone's identity. Our goal is for God to wash them, to sanctify them, to justify them. That is my first prerogative if I meet someone in the the, um, LGBTQ community. That's my first prerogative is not just to call out their sexual identity, but I want them to see the transforming grace of God, that same grace that transformed a sinner like me, that I had other sinful desires. I was walking according to the prince of powers of the air. I was steeped in my own sin, but guess what happened? God came in, his grace renewed me. He washed me, he cleansed me. He sanctified me. He justified me. And he can do that for you. This is not about your identity. This is about your soul. That is your first prerogative. is to tell them of the transforming nature, the grace of God that calls all sinners, all men everywhere to bow the knee to Christ who cleanses, who sanctifies, and who justifies. That's our gospel hope here. And even beyond that, we know these to be our three convictions. That God's sovereignty remains our joy. That God's word remains our standard. And that God's gospel remains our hope. We have to realize as we talk about this discussion as well is that it doesn't mean that Christians, born again Christians, will also struggle with sins of their past. Now they are freed from them. They're not in bondage to them, enslaved to them. But they will struggle. 
And Christians need to be a compassionate community that realizes that all of us are struggling with sin one way or another. And whatever that sin is, we want to walk with compassion with those who are still struggling with their sexual identity. Those who have been saved by Christ and are washed, hate their sin, love the Savior. Those who have been cleansed and justified and sanctified. We don't want to point down as if their sin is worse than mine. But rather, we realize that we're all, the foot, the level, the foot at the cross is all level. That I am just as vile and I've been saved by the same Savior. And we realize the same grace is not only what saves but sanctifies us. That we need to be an open community, an honest community to realize that sin is still an issue. That we struggle, we all struggle with one sin or another. And we should be compassionate and realize that God's grace is an ongoing transforming grace that sanctifies us until the end. So we should be compassionate. We should be tender. We should realize who we are and never lose sight that such were some of you. That if you remember your testimony, then you can testify of God's grace Because Paul makes clear that some of the members of the Corinthian church were former homosexuals. This shows that that true transformation is possible. Such were some of you. It is possible. Because who does the work? Not some smart therapy. But Christ does the work. Such were some of you. But he did that. He washed you. He sanctified you. He justified you. It is possible. Not because of our intellect but because of the transforming grace of God. So ministering to the LGBT community begins by understanding how prone humans are to being deceived by their desires. That's just true nature of all sin. How prone are humans to be deceived by their own desires? As I alluded to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, that we all lived in our flesh at one point. We all lived according to our desires. But even more, because those in the bondage of homosexuality are so tied to the identity, we must reveal the perfection of God's character and how his salvation transforms completely, inwardly, and outwardly. That don't try to clean yourself up. Don't try to wash yourself up. Come to Christ as you are. And think of time and time again in the Gospels when Christ encounters a sinner. He says he has compassion on him. And he healed them. He had compassion upon them. He says, your sins are forgiven. This is the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ, who loves the sinner so much so that he gave his life up for a sinful body. That we're all a sinful body who've been cleansed, cleansed and washed and cleaned by the blood of Christ. This is the compassion. To come to Christ as you are. The sinner's greatest need is not conversion therapy but it's soul conversion. So no matter how the social climate wavers, I can assure you that God will not leave himself without a witness. And that is our assurance. That is our boldness. That is our calling for you. That is our calling for me, is that we ought to be bold lights in our community. Not afraid of someone because of their lifestyle. Not afraid, not trying to handle it with kid gloves, but realize you hold the power of, of the cross, that the grace of God you know well, and that is the only hope for fallen man. You have that power in you. Why do we need to cower at man when we realize the only hope is for God's sovereign grace and he works it whenever he wills, however he wills, no matter how dead a person is in their sins. He can transform the greatest of sinners, 
And here's evidence. Look at me. The church remains stable. And we will stand as a church. As Christ promised himself in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. This means the church, it may not always look the same, but it will remain the same. Maybe we'll meet underground, maybe above ground, maybe around the corner. Who knows? Who cares? The church will remain the church, and nothing can stop it. The gates of hell can't even stop it. So we will be a united body, standing firm in truth, holding fast the grace of God, the transforming grace of God in the midst of a compromised culture. We remain standing upon its Savior, comprised of a people who are born again by marvelous grace. That's our testimony. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that we can stand in this truth Not because we did anything to earn it, to deserve it. But Lord, we stand here as a sinful people redeemed by a marvelous Savior. And God, we praise you for that work of conversion you've done in us. And Lord, I pray that even in this this very room, if someone has not been born again, that you would, even today, today would be the day of their salvation, that you would convert them. I pray that anyone who does not know you would look to the perfect Savior who will reject no one who comes to him. God, we thank you and we magnify this gift of grace. And Lord, I pray that that would be the very thing we profess as we go into this world, as we leave this building, as we leave this assembly. May that be the testimony of our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.